Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. Um, thank you for joining us this morning. We are in the third week of our uh, sermon uh, series called Flourish, Grow, Fruitfulness. Um, this is a, uh, a sermon series dealing with generosity, uh, and it is connected to our capital campaign. Uh, as we've announced, we have launched a capital campaign, or at least are in the process of doing so. We're seeking to raise $1.1 million over the course of three years. We're looking for 120 families to join us in that effort, uh, or individual givers, um, in order to get there. Our capital campaign booklet uh, explains all the, the what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we plan to get there, and how you can be involved. So please pick one of these up and take a look at it. We would ask you to kind of prayerfully uh, work your way through it and, and see if God is leading you to join us uh, in this act of generosity. Also, want to remind you, uh, Gary Rohrmeyer and I did write uh, a 21-day a devotional designed to, to honestly help you just engage the issue of generosity, right? Generosity isn't the default mode of our hearts, and so we have to prepare to be generous. And this was uh, our, our gift to you to help you to move in that direction. And so uh, I'm hoping you're enjoying it. I hope you're digging in. And, 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 and if you started at the beginning, you're getting to the, well, I shouldn't say it this way, but you're getting to the good stuff because I wrote the last, uh, the, last, the last portion of it. And uh, I edited the whole thing, but I, I wrote the last portion. And I, I really hope it's a blessing to you. If you haven't picked one of those up, we do have more in the lobby. It's our gift to you. Please just grab it and, uh, and dig in. Um, this sermon series, um, Flourish, is um, this isn't the most popular topic in the world to preach about, right? We're talking about generosity, which everybody loves to talk about generosity, but for us to talk about generosity means we also need to talk about greed. Uh, I have to expose greed for us to become generous, and uh, greed is not the most popular thing to talk about in our culture, right? In fact, most of the time in, in most churches, in most of my Christian life, I don't think I ever heard sermons about greed, right? I don't have people coming to my office They're like, Steve, I got, this, I got this issue I'm really wrestling with, man. I just need prayer and, and some counsel to help me grow through it. I'm wrestling with greed. That doesn't happen. People don't confess greed because people don't see greed. In fact, um, about a year and a half ago, I was going through some life stuff, and, and um, in order to help me focus, I sat down and wrote a book. Um, it, I've always wanted to write a book, and, and I want to write more, and, and uh, it wasn't a book that I did a lot. Of, I, just, I just wrote it, and, um, and one of the primary themes was greed. Because I've come to see that, that greed is one of the primary forces in our hearts that block us from growing in joy. And, uh, and I, I actually ended up having a conversation with a, um, uh, a representative, a, a book agent who, who handles very big deals. And he read it and he's like, man, I like your writing and um, this is really good. The problem is there's no market for it. He said, people don't go to the bookstore looking for books on greed. I'm like, but it's not really about greed. It's about all these other things. And he's like, yeah, you got you to gotta repackage it. You got to reframe it if you want this thing to be marketable. We don't like to talk about greed, right? The church, and that just, I mean, honestly, the more I study, the more I'm confounded by that. Uh, the church is known for talking about certain sins. Let's be honest. The church is known for talking about sexual sin. 
right, at least the traditional church. Um, and, and there's a good reason for that, right? Sexual sin is a, is, a, is a huge plague on the human soul, and it blocks us from moving into joy with God. Pornea, the Greek word uh, that is translated sexual immorality in the New Testament, of course, we get our English word porn from it, um, it's used in the New Testament 25 times. Major theme through the New Testament. If you count in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used an additional 46 times. So throughout the Bible, this word is used 71 times. It's a major theme in Scripture, and so it would be remiss for, for pastors and biblical teachers not to talk about those things, right? But here's what I want you to catch. The misuse of wealth is talked about over 2,000 times in Scripture over 2,000 times. This is not a minor theme in Scripture, and greed is not a minor sin in the human heart. Jesus talked more about money than He did any other topic. I mean, let that sink in. He talked more about money than He did any other topic, and it's not because money is more important than any other topic. It's because it's more deceptive. There are few things that can deceive our hearts into thinking that we can be equal to God like money. There are few things that deceive our hearts into thinking that we can buy our way into the flourishing of life like money. If I get a little more money, a little more prestige, a little more luxury, a little more vacation, a little more security, a little more, then I will be independent happy, joyful, and secure apart from humble dependence on God. It promises the fullness of life, and yet money never fails to fail, right? Money, money, it, it, it never fails to fail, and, and ironically, we never fail to forget it. Money doesn't give us what we hope it'll give us, and we just forget it and keep chasing money, hoping next time it'll give us what we hoped it would give us. Greed is the default mode of our human hearts. Let's just go there. Greed is the default mode of the human heart. It is the central deception that, that controls most of our behavior. I need to keep what I have and get more. That's the path to the flourishing of life. That's the path to the fullness of life. And if we don't fight it, we will have it. If we do not actively work against the, the greed in our hearts... The greed in our hearts will control us because it is deceptively alluring. And that's why generosity is so hard. See, everything in us tells us that when we give, we, we lose. When we give, we, we lose wealth, we lose security, we lose comfort, we lose significant. When we give, we lose. As Americans, we think of ourselves as generous people. And we do give, right? Individually and, and as a nation, we do, we do give. When there's a crisis, you see Americans rise up in, in generosity. But the reality is we give out of what's left over. Giving isn't our primary goal. It is a secondary thought. We don't have giving goals. We have keeping goals. And, and once we've met our keeping goals, we, we give out of what is left over, we tend to give impulsively and emotionally based on whatever need is in front of us and we feel generous, right? And, and, and so sometimes we even in that emotional moment give sacrificially, like give in a way that hurts 
but often has a very negative effect in our hearts. We regret the gift afterwards, right? We give generously, and later we're like, oh, man, that, I don't know if I should have gone there. And then there's a recoil effect. The next time the opportunity for being generous comes up, you're like, I've already got my get-out-of-jail-free card. I am generous because I gave. I don't have to keep giving. I did that. Don't ask me to keep doing that. It's ironic. The average American thinks they're generous, but the average American only gives away about 2.5% of their wealth. On a percentage level, that's less than Americans gave away during the Great Depression. See, there's an irony. The more we have, typically, on a percentage basis, the less we give. The more we keep, and the more we feel entitled to keep. When we push into genuine generosity to give as an expression of love, it'll cost us. And so things in us recoil from that cost. Greed rises up and and activates fear and entitlement in our hearts. If I give, then I won't be able to get. If I give, then I won't be able to keep. If I give, then I won't be able to have. If I give, I won't be able to move into the fullness of life. And entitlement comes right with it. I deserve what I have. Who is anyone to feel entitled to it? Don't do it. You'll be poor. All right, so over the course of this series, we've been asking what I believe are provocative questions. <laughs> they're really, really simple questions on the surface, but they're provocative because they expose lies we believe. In the first week, we talked about what is love. I was thinking, what is wealth? <laughs> what, is, what is love? Got to, no, what, what, is, what is wealth, right? Um, and, and most of us think of wealth as money, the accumulation of money and all the things that it can buy. True wealth is love. True wealth is being loved and loving, being vulnerable and open, being in a place where you are known and you can know, and all the joy and all the security and all the significance and all the the deep rest that comes from that experience, that's genuine wealth. The poorest people on the face of the earth only have money. That is poverty. True wealth is love. Last week we asked, what is genuine generosity? Because we think of genuine generosity as, well, when I give and it hurts, that's generous. But often the hurt is just a signal of our greed because our greed always hurts when we give, right? Genuine generosity isn't measured by the amount that you give. It's not measured by the amount of pain that you experience. Genuine generosity is measured by the amount of love that motivates the gift. True wealth is love. True generosity is the movement of that love in love to meet other people's needs, right? And as a result, as we know in every human relationship, love always asks us to give more than we're comfortable giving, right? Always, every relationship, right? That's why giving is sacrificial. Love always asks us to give more than we're comfortable giving, but it always gives us more than we expected we'd receive, right? True generosity is is an expression of love, And that means, and this is our question for this morning, when I give, doesn't it make me poor, poorer? Or I'll just use bad grammar so it's more clear. When I give, doesn't it make me more poor? Right? Because most of us, honestly, that's, that's, we believe that. That's one of the subtle lies that influences us. And here's, here's what you need to get. Since true wealth is love and true generosity is the giving and the sharing of love, when we give, we get richer. When we give, we're not impoverished. We actually grow richer. All right, so in our text, Paul 
is on a multi-city fundraising tour going to Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches, to raise money for poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem, right? That's, that's, his, that's his task, and it's not an easy one. Because in the ancient world, there were no uh, general feelings of love for humanity or a value of generosity. Those things didn't exist in the ancient world. He couldn't appeal to broader cultural values to, to, to make this collection. And so he is appealing to them, them to be generous on the basis of generosity itself. He's saying generosity in and of itself is so valuable that you should want to give, right? Generosity will benefit you. That's the essence of his argument. So let me ask you, how does generosity make us richer? There's so much in this text, but I'm going to move fairly quickly through it as we kind of explore some of the principles as Paul unpacks that show that generous generosity actually increases our wealth. First of all, general, uh, genuine generosity results in a generous harvest. First principle, take a look at chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. All right, the more seed you put into the ground, the more harvest you get in return. Logic, right? Makes sense. If you sow a single pumpkin seed, you'll be lucky to get one pumpkin plant, right? Not going to be great for, for uh, Linus. You know, he wants the great pumpkin patch, right? The only way to get to the great pumpkin patch is to sow a lot of pumpkin seed. The more seed you sow, the greater the harvest you reap. This is, this is what we would call one of the unseen moral principles of life. One of, what I would call an unseen moral law of life. And it's often stated in the scripture like this. You get what you, 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 you reap what you sow, right? You've heard that? You reap what you sow. Right? If you put a pumpkin seed in the ground, you don't get a rose. You get a pumpkin. Right? You reap what you sow. Paul is taking that, that universal unseen principle and saying, look, not only do you reap what you sow, but when you, when you sow generously, you reap a harvest. That it is not just... Um, qualitative, like the quality of the seed produces the quality of the plant, it's quantitative. The more you sow, the, the more you reap, right? That, that's kind of the principle that he's, that he's pushing into, right? Now remember, what's true wealth? Love. Let's, I want to keep driving us home, get us back there. Love, right? If true generosity then is, is giving in love, then the sowing we're talking about is, is, is the kind of sowing where you're sowing seeds of love through financial giving, right? He's not talking, he's not, this is still about money, but it's the expression of love through financial giving. And he says, look, when you grow in the generosity of giving more money, you will reap a harvest in return. Generous sowing leads to a generous harvest. When you sow in your true wealth, love, you will have a more generous experience of love in return. If you sow sparingly, on the other hand, if you allow greed, 
greed to grip your heart and you want to keep what you have and get more and, and you give reluctantly and you give resentfully and you give in, 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 in ways that, that are all self-protective, you actually reduce your harvest, right? Because the harvest is measured not by the amount of money, but by the amount of love. The people who are richest are those that sow generously. We know this. People who are generous with their love are rich in love, right? Those who, who sow generously reap bountifully. And Paul's making it very, very clear. Love and money are not two separate issues. What you do with your money reveals what you love. And what you do with your money shapes what you love, right? So the first principle is that genuine generosity results in a genuine a generous harvest, right? Second principle is that genuine gener- generosity can't outpace God's equipping for generosity, right? Take a look at uh, chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. I love Paul's use of the word, the rhetorical use of the word all in these verses. God makes all grace abound to you. How much grace does he give you? All of it. All of it. It's abounding. How often does he give it? All the time. Never ceasing, never ending. Like God's generosity is a never ending, never ceasing, never interrupted flow of love. He makes all grace abound to you. Why? So that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. Why? So that you can abound in every good work. Listen, God loves generosity. Because generosity is an expression of love, and God is love. God is the essence of generosity, the essence of self-giving, the essence of pouring himself out in love so that others might be enriched. God loves generosity because he is a generous God. And what Paul is telling you is that you can't outgive God. You can't outgenerous the source of generosity. You can't give your way into impoverishment. And we'll get into this more in a little bit. But if God calls you to give it, you're not going to be poor on the other side of it. At least not impoverished. A little bit different, but we'll talk about it. God loves generosity. You can't outgive God. He, he will equip you. This is a promise. The God of all grace is able to make sure that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times, so that you can abound, like abound, in every good work, in every act of love, in every opportunity for generosity. He is able, right? He is able, and He loves to do it. You can't outgive God. You can't be so generous that you exceed God's ability to equip your generosity. You just can't. Next principle. Genuine generosity, which is a natural outflow of the previous one, will increase your capacity for generosity. 
chapter uh, 9, verses 10 and 11. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will, will provide thanksgiving to God. God gave you what you have, right? All of us have something. Some of us have more than others. All of us have more than somebody. And God gave you. All the seeds you have, right? Because the metaphor of seed is, is, is here obviously talking about your monetary wealth, right? God gave you everything you have. He is the one that has equipped you to earn it. He is the one that gave you the talents that could be developed, that could be marketable, that could put you into the marketplace to help you earn them. There's nothing you have that God has not given. Now, have you worked hard to develop the gifts that God has given you? I'm sure you have. Did you take advantage of opportunities as they came so that you could increase the amount of seed that was in your collection bucket? I'm sure you have, but that doesn't mean you created the seed or that it is yours. You have nothing that has not been given to you. Everything you have has either been a direct gift from God or utilizing a direct gift from God to grow in your ability to earn what you have. God has given you what you have. He's given you the seed. And listen, He's honored when you're generous with it. He's honored when you don't live in the delusion that somehow this is yours. You created it, you have a right to it, nobody can tell you what to do with it. He is honored when you recognize that everything you have is a gift. And as a gift of grace, He is honored as you recognize that that He calls you then to move out in grace with what He's given you. In fact, as you give, He will multiply your ability to give. This is a ridiculous promise. As you give in generosity, He will in fact increase your capacity for generosity. He's saying, look, I gave it to you to begin with. It wasn't the result of your intelligence or or your wisdom or or your being in the right place at the right time. Those things were simply ways that you, you moved into the blessing I gave. I gave it to you, and I will give more of it to you. You will be enriched in every way to be generous. That's what it says. Right? Verse 10, I will multiply your seed for sowing. That is a, that's a promise of monetary blessing. I will increase your seed for sowing, right? In verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now, does every way include money? Yes. These are ridiculous promises. Now, I do want you to catch the focus. You will be, I will multiply your seed. Why? For the keeping? No, for the sowing. Right? In verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. The focus is so that you can give more, not so you can have more. There are 
some teachers, they're known as prosperity gospel preachers, who love these verses. And what they teach is they take these principles, the more you give, the more you get, right? The more you sow, the more you reap. They're biblical principles. They're true principles. But what they do is they put them back into the paradigm of greed. And they say, do you want more money? Give more money. Because when you give more money, you'll get more money. And when you get more money, you'll be able to give more money, which means you'll be able to get more money. And meanwhile, they're, they're driving around luxury cars, living in luxury homes, and what they're selling is this idea that somehow this is the new way to get and keep, to keep what you have and get more. Give it away, and it'll come back to you. And as you do, you'll be able to rise in your significance. In other words, the fullness and the flourishing of life. What they're selling is the fullness and flourishing of life comes at the end of having more, getting more, and keeping more. This is not only a lie, it's ridiculous and it's sad. These fools are actually trading genuine wealth, love, joy, significance, security, freedom, contentment for a prison of impoverished money. I can't think of a more twisted approach to grace than to think that somehow I can engage grace to make myself more independent from God, who is the one who gives the fullness of life. When I see prosperity preachers, I mean, honestly, I I don't get angry, I get sad. Because they're calling people away from the table of grace and back into the prison of poverty. Listen, these principles are true. I'm, it's in the scripture. When you give, he says, man, when you give, grow in generosity, God will equip your ability to be generous. When you sow seed, God will increase your capacity to sow seed. I've seen this principle at work in my own life. When I have pushed into difficult realms of generosity, I have seen an overwhelming harvest, not just of money, of righteousness and joy and fruitfulness. But money was part of it. I've never given my way into a place where God didn't take care of me. I've never given my way into a place where I regretted having responded to the grace of God. I was always richer at the end result. Listen, God will increase the seed for your sowing. He will equip you to be generous in every way. All right, there's a second principle at work in these verses, and it's this, that genuine generosity will work for your good and God's glory, right? Money's not true wealth. Having more money is not is not going to take you where you want to go. True wealth is, is love. And, and so take a look at verse 10 again. In verse 10, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will multiply your seed for sowing. Now notice the last part, and increase the harvest, what? Of your righteousness. All right, so he's talking about your sanctification. How does God increase your righteousness? He's talking about your sanctification, not your justification. And some of you are like, all right, Steve, $10, $10 jargon words. I get it. So justification 
is the doctrine. So the word justify means to declare right. Justification is the, the means by which God declares me right. So justification occurs when we believe in Jesus. Because when we believe in Jesus, our sin, our shame, uh, our guilt is, is transferred. It is imputed to Christ. And when he died on the cross, he died under the weight of our guilt, our shame, and our sin. And when he was taken down from the cross, our sin stayed there. Our guilt, our shame, our, our crimes against God, our, our cosmic treason stayed dead. Right? It was imputed to him and he paid the price for it. He died. And when he rose again, he then imputed to me or gave to me his righteousness. So my sin was imputed to him. His righteousness was imputed to me. And as a result, when God, the judge of all the universe, looks at me, he sees the record of Jesus, not the record of Steve. And therefore, the cosmic gavel comes down and I am declared in the universe right righteous, acceptable, because I stand on the record of Jesus. That's justification. I have been declared right. I believed in Jesus, and, and everything he did right is now imputed to me. And, and every sin I did commit, every sin I do commit, every sin I will commit was paid for by Christ and is left on the cross. That's justification. It's a beautiful gift, right? I am totally right with God. Sanctification, on the other hand, is God's progressive work to change us so that we become what He's already declared us to be, right? There's a huge gap between who I am and who I will be. There's a huge gap between who I am and who God has declared me to be. I've been declared perfectly righteous. Little hint, I'm not. Okay, I, I still struggle. I still get tired and angry. I still get selfish. I still get envious. I, I still have lust. I still wrestle with, with deep things that, that aren't in line with the righteousness of Christ. I am not yet what I've already been declared to be. Sanctification is the process where God is closing that gap where He is changing me to become more of what He's already declared me to be. He's bringing me closer and closer to my future reality in which I will fully be what I have been declared to be. Listen, generosity. Generosity. When you push into generosity, it will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Generosity is like a turbo boost on your sanctification generosity increases your experience of becoming more like Christ. Why? Because generosity is love. You can't engage grace without being transformed by grace. You can't, you can't jump into the flow of grace without becoming more like the God from whom that flow comes. Generosity will increase your harvest of righteousness. It'll increase your sanctification. It is for your good. Verse 11 tells us that it is also um, for God's glory, right? In verse 11, he says, um, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Not only will you grow in grace, 
Not only will you become more like Christ, not only will, it, will God use it to, to, to free you and, and bless you so that you experience more of the blessings that you have in Christ, God will receive increased praise as a result of it. See, as we give, we become the instruments of grace in other people's lives. As we give, our generosity becomes a grace experience in someone else's life that awakens them to to the beautiful flow of grace and, and frees them to an experience of genuine gratitude toward God. As grace spreads God glory, God's glory. It's not increased because you can't increase the glory of God. <laughs> but the thanksgiving for it increases. Because the experience of it increases. When you move into generosity, it's for your good, but it is also resulting in, in, in an increased, abounding thanksgiving to God. Increased praise for God. Now, as we've already hinted, in order to be truly generous... Um, That generosity has to be genuine, right? So the next principle is this, that genuine generosity must be a free commitment of faith, joyfully given. Take a look back up chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, giving. True generosity is love, and love is sacrificial because we, we, we give of ourselves to what we love, and that means that you're going to end up giving more than you're comfortable giving. Love always leads us to give more than we're comfortable giving, always. True generosity then will take us to places we never intended to go that are going to require steps of faith to get there. True generosity will put you in situations where you have to grow in your faith, where you have to step out trusting that God will keep his word. Generosity doesn't make sense if you see the world through the lens of greed. It really doesn't um, because, because if I give, I'm impoverished. If I give too much, I'm, I suffer too much. If I give, I experience less of life, not more of it, right? Greed, generosity and greed do not mix. So, so, and because greed is the default mode of the human heart, it means we have to wrestle with God to be truly generous. Not to overcome God, but so that God can overcome our greed. Right? So that the grace of God can, can come in and grow our faith so that we can say with, with genuine freedom, with, with genuine honesty, I'm a steward of all that God has given me. I'm not the owner. I am a steward of, of all that God has graciously given me, and therefore I can come to the God who gave it to me and say to Him, how would you have me use it? How would you have me steward it for my good and your glory? He says, when you're in that place, you decide in your heart what you're going to give. You decide in your heart. In other words, you make a commitment of faith. It's not simply an impulsive response to an emotional moment. It is an intentional part of your discipleship plan, of your growth in grace, of your walk with God. Generosity should not be secondary and impulsive. It should be primary and from your first fruits. Generosity should be part of your plan for life. You need to decide how you're going to be generous. 
Decide in your heart and take a step of faith. And because it's a step of faith in response to love, in response to the incredible promises that God has given you, that step can be taken in joy, right? Because when you give out of greed, you give reluctantly, you give out of fear, you give, you give with regret, you give with resentment, you, you give, but you kind of hold yourself back. And honestly, those are the worst gifts to get. When somebody gives me something, I could tell that they kind of resent that they have to give it to me. They're like, nah, that doesn't produce in my heart thankfulness to God or gratitude toward them. Usually I'm like, would you please take that back? Because I don't want what you're actually giving me here. Like the gift looks attractive, but I don't want it like that, right? Greed, greed spoils it. When we take the step in faith, man, it allows us to give in joy. Even when it's sacrificial, it's like, man, God gave me everything I have, and now he's asking me to invest it in this way. And the God who gave seed to the sower is going to multiply the seed. The one who, who has given me all things to be sufficient in all things will increase the harvest of my, of my bounty. God loves a joyful giver. You know why? It's not because he's sad and he needs some cheering up. It's, it's because joy flows from faith. Joy says, when we give joyfully, we're saying to God, is I trust you. When, we, when we're able to sacrifice like that and do it joyfully, it, what we're saying to God is, I believe your promises. I trust your character. I'm not, I don't need to be independent from you. I can be joyfully and humbly dependent on you because you are the giver of all good gifts. The Greek word for joyful is the Greek word hilaros, from which we get our English word hilarious. It doesn't mean we need to be fools laughing our heads off while we give. But it does mean we're talking about a bubbly, cheerful joyfulness. We're talking about an actual emotional experience. Like that lifts you up. That lifts your head and, and, and gives you joy. You're excited to give. Yeah, none of this talk makes any sense at all to somebody who's still worshiping at the altar of greed. None of this talk makes any sense at all to those who measure their flourishing of life by how much they get to keep instead of their experience of life by how much they get to give. They'll see it as crazy. So, so very, very practically, how can you be a joyful giver when things really start to pinch, when things get to get hard? Because here's, here's a spiritual pattern I've discerned in my life and I have absolutely seen it repeated in other people's lives is this. When, when we're undone by grace, right, when you first believe in Jesus, when you're just, you're just like very, very generous. Like, like people who are brand new believers in Jesus, they're talking about Jesus in all the awkward places that mature believers in Jesus have learned not to talk about him. I love it. They're like, family dinner at Thanksgiving? Great time to talk about Jesus. Right? And the whole family's like, you don't talk about Jesus at Thanksgiving dinner. He's like, but I can't stop myself, right? They're, they're just cheerful. There's a joy. They, oh, you have a need? Let me give it to you. How much do you have? Nothing left. <laughs> Isn't it awesome? God gave that to me and he's going to give me more. And then what happens? You're undone by grace. You take a step out in faith. And invariably you find yourself exposed. 
You find yourself on the other end of an awkward conversation where people aren't responding like the way you hoped. You, you find yourself on the other end of a gift and all of a sudden you're in a financial difficult spot that you didn't expect or foresee. All of a sudden things come up in your life that make your gift seem really, really foolish. Because you didn't see these unexpected expenses. You didn't see these unexpected challenges coming. And so you get scared and you start wondering, man, was I just stupid all along? You know what the real question going on there is? Is your faith in God or is your faith in your circumstances? See, what's going on there is called a test of your faith. And it's predictable. God allows it to happen. God causes it to happen. You step out in faith. God makes it harder for you to take that step. Why would he do that? Look, when he tests your faith, he's not trying to find out if it's genuine. He's purifying it so it will be. You took a step of faith, now God's going to purify that faith because he wants you to recognize that step is completely dependent on him, not your circumstances, right? God is testing our faith, not to discover it, but to purify it. And as we continue to push into faith, in spite of our fear, in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the sacrifice, he proves himself to be faithful. And as he proves himself to be faithful, guess what that does to our faith? It strengthens it. It increases it. It purifies it. It grows our joy. It grows our love. It grows our security. It grows our significance. It changes us. Let me tell you a story. Um, It's a story that I told at our leadership dinner and and uh, my capital campaign chairman and his wife, um, he chaired this campaign and he chaired our previous one. Um, and in the previous campaign, he gave a lead gift, right? Which the lead gifts are, are significant amounts of money. He gave a lead gift. One of the, there's a collection of lead gifts. They're, they're usually the, the much more expensive gifts to give. He gave a, gave a lead gift. And, 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 and as the, um, the, the thing was going, as our capital campaign was going, we would meet on a weekly basis for updates, and I would just be sharing stories with him, like, man, I just met with so-and-so, and they're giving this much. And in order to do it, man, they're doing this, they're giving this up, they're making this sacrifice. And you know what's really cool? Like, they can't stop smiling. And so I'm telling them these stories of people giving and giving generously and giving joyfully, and their joy increasing as they do it. And one time I meet with him, and he's sitting there, and his head is down, and I'm like, dude, what's going on? Why? He's like, i got to talk to you about my gift. And I'm like, okay, what happened? Like, no problem. He's like, i got to give more. I'm like, what? You're already giving a lead gift. You're being very, very generous. He goes, I know, but it's not generous enough. It wasn't sacrificial. We're going to double our gift. That'll be sacrificial. And we prayed about it and we believe that's what God's telling us to do. I'm floored. Like, who has those conversations? Right? Where does that happen? I'm floored. And so I'm like, all right, man, thank you. I'm floored by your generosity. Thank you. So then, the capital campaign begins, they start giving their monthly gift, and, and remember the capital campaign is above and beyond the normal giving, right, because we have to continue funding our normal budget, and so people who give to our capital campaign are making additional sacrifices to be involved, so he's, he's giving his regular amount to the church, which we ask everyone to keep doing, above and beyond he gives to the capital campaign so that we can have this special offering, 
and they have an opportunity comes up where, where um, the house of, really the house of their dreams becomes available to them. And, and it's quite a bit more expensive and they pray about it and they look at their budget and they look at all their commitments and they're like, all right, Lord, we think we can do this. We, we think we can take this step and, and get the house and still honor all of our commitments. So they, they do it. God blesses them, right? They get the house and then God blesses them in another way. They get pregnant. And they end up going down to single income. And all of a sudden, they're in this storm of having way more expense and way less income than they thought they would have. And so they met again, and they're like, how do we reduce our expenditures? Should we go to the church and, and tell them that, that we overcommitted and that we need to pull it back? Now here, if he had come and told me that, I want you to know what my response would have been. I'd have been like, praise God. If God's leading you to give less, praise God. God calls us to give out of what we have, not out of what we don't have. So honor God and what you have, right? That, I'm, praise God. I honor your step of faith, whatever it is, right? It, but they decided, as they prayed, that they would honor their gift. They didn't know how they were going to do it. Like, literally, it just didn't make sense. But God made it make sense. They not only paid for their house, they paid their capital campaign. Did they sacrifice to make it happen? Yeah, they did. Did they grow in their faith as a result? Yeah, they did. God used it to bless them. I'm telling you, it's a predictive, predictable pattern, and, and I love seeing it play out. I don't always love it when it plays out in my life, but I love seeing it play out in other people's lives because it just brings <laughs> fruitfulness. So this brings us to the final principle. How do you stay centered on, on God's generosity when it gets hard? Final principle. You got to stay rooted in God's love. If you're going to stay faithful when it gets hard, you got to stay rooted in God's love. Um, take a look at chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was rich. He existed in the very, in the very presence and, and the very essence of God. He was the second person of the Trinity. Uh, he, he lived in eternal glory, and yet he didn't consider his equality with God, his experience of his glory, something to be grasped and held on to selfishly, but instead he humbled himself. He, he emptied himself and, and took on the form of a man because that's what we needed him to be for, for us to be freed. He became a servant to our need to the point of dying uh, death on the cross because that's the price that needed to be paid to pay the debt that we owed. He was made poor that we might be made rich. But let me ask you something. He was made poor for our sake, but was he impoverished? Is there a difference between moving into a, 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 a situation of being poor and being impoverished? No, he wasn't impoverished. He made a free will commitment of faith, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> Son of God made a commitment of faith that, that he was going to be generous in this way. And his faith was tested. You look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is crying out to God, let this cup pass for me if there's any way possible. His faith was tested, and yet he moved forward in faith. And his father proved faithful. And when he was raised from the dead, he was not only restored to the glory that he had before his incarnation, he was now also crowned with the glory and honor of not just being the son of God, but being the son of man, the pinnacle, not only the creator of creation, but the pinnacle of creation. 
And from that place, he is now able to pour out generosity upon generosity upon generosity, or as John puts it, grace upon grace upon grace. How do we continue to push forward when faith, in faith when things seem hard? We need to remind ourselves that He is faithful. And that's why this discussion always lands again on verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, And in this matter, talking to the Corinthians, I give you my judgment, Corinthians, as you're considering whether or not to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem, this benefits you. Generosity enriches you. It does not impoverish you. Giving does not make you poor. Giving makes you rich. This is your benefit. All right. Um, little confession. I thought today was a short sermon, uh, but that's all right. I appreciate your generosity to me. Uh, we had a, a, an incredible forum Friday night that took my whole week to prepare for, and then we had uh, uh, my granddaughter born yesterday. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, so I wrote this in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to ask for your indulgence for just a little bit more because there are just two more stories I want to share with you. Paul was calling the Corinthians to generosity by telling them about the benefits of generosity. And when he did it, he kept giving them the examples of others. He said, Corinthians, be generous, look at the Macedonians. Not to lift the Macedonians up and make them heroes, but so that the, the Corinthians could find a corrective. You believe certain things that are keeping you from growing in grace. Look at them. Don't you want what they have? Right? The Macedonians gave generously out of their poverty and they're rich in joy. They're rich in ways you're poor. Don't you want to be like them? And so it's really valuable to share stories. Um, after our advanced commitment dinner, um, our leadership team has been meeting with leaders, people who, who said they wanted to lead by giving because they give in a way that invites others to join them. That's what leadership is. And, and so um, I have sat down with a number of them. Um, it's been so cool. I shared last week a couple of stories that came out of that and, and have just encouraged my heart. People that were making significant sacrifices to commit to the capital campaign. And I came across another one this week, just, just a story of people wrestling, how can I be generous? Because most of us, to be generous, we have to find ways to be generous, right? There are a few people whose, whose income is here and their expenses are here. And those are usually people who have giving goals. Like, they're already very, very generous people. They've intentionally lived below their means so that they have more money to be generous with. Most of us are like this. This is our income and that's our expense. As, as our income increases, so does our standard of living, right? And so it's really hard for us to be generous because we don't have any gap between what we make and what we already spend, so we have to ask some critical questions. What can I eliminate? What can I reduce? What can I postpone? Right? What, what can I stop spending on? What can I reduce spending on? What can I postpone in order to create space for generosity, right? We talked about this last week. Somebody who gives up a $5 coffee every morning and a $10 lunch, you make your own coffee and pack your own lunch 
over the course of three years, do that five days a week, you're going to have about $12,000 that you now have for generosity. Eliminating one of your video streaming surfaces, you know, you pick one, Netflix, Hulu, uh, Amazon Prime, you're going to free up over the course of three years eight to $10,000. That car, most of us have cars that we're paying on or we're just paying off, and most people trade their cars in every three to five years. They just have a, a car payment in their budget. What if you keep that car once you get past that limit and you keep it an additional three years and you simply take that car payment and you that now gives you a room, about $15,000 over the course of three years on average that could become uh, space for generosity. I met with a leader this week who made a generous contribution to the campaign, and over the course of the conversation, I just kind of asked, you know, how, how'd you get there? How'd you make this happen? And just kind of like totally low-key, not even, he's just like, oh, I'm just going to postpone retiring. I'm like, and then he immediately follows it up, but you know what, Steve? He said, I love this church. I love what God is doing in this church. I love what God is doing in me, and I love what God is doing through this church in the lives of others. The gospel is powerful here. You know what that did to my heart? It produced a wealth of thanksgiving to God. It spurred me into greater grace. Um, we give because we've been given to. And we grow in love as we grow in generosity. So this morning, I do want to report to you what our, um, our leadership team has given. Um, we've asked our leadership team to give in advance so that we can show our leaders are leading and invite others to follow. And uh, as of this morning, we had 26 families or 26 individual givers reporting. And, um, and as of this morning... Um, I think the latest number I heard was right around $451,000. We just... <laughs> so ridiculously encouraging to me, $451,000. We're hoping for around 120 families or individuals to be involved in this gift. We need everybody involved if we're going to make our goal. So my request to you is simply to pray about it. Ask God how you should be involved. Get jealous. Not to keep your money, but to give it so that you can have a giving story. You can have a giving testimony. You can have that moment where you step out in faith and you see your faith tested and you grow and you're able to once again proclaim the glory of he who is faithful. Some important dates for, I want you, for you to remember. Our commitment Sundays for, our, for everyone else. For our capital campaign, of course, this is time sensitive. And so on November 17th and on November 24th, we're asking all of our members who, who weren't part of the advanced commitment, man, pray about it. If God wants you to be involved, please submit your, your commitment um, by, that, by those weeks. And, uh, and we'll announce it after that. And then we'll take a first fruit Sunday on December 8th in which um, we're able to take up an offering as, as kind of a... Uh, a pre-investment into this thing. Thank you for your gener uh, generous generosity uh, as I go over. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you um, for Trailhead Church. Thank you for your grace and the grace we get to share together and the love that we get to grow in together. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible opportunity for us to accomplish something very, very significant. And I pray, Lord, that you would equip us uh, with the resources to do so, but even more importantly, with the freedom to get there. 
Because I know, Lord, that, that even after we've accomplished this goal and paid off this debt and done these incredible things, the changes that take place in us aren't going to go away. The ways we grow richer in joy and in freedom and in faith will impact us and free us and bless us because your gifts are eternal. And what an incredible thing to be able to give away something so temporary as money that we might grow rich in something eternal like freedom and joy and dignity and being conformed to the image of your son. We thank you. You guys take a moment and just uh, pray. We'll share communion in a moment.